Hello and welcome to The Things That Make Us, a podcast about people and the objects that have shaped them. My name is Zoe Laughlin and each week I invite a guest to pick five things that have inspired, delighted, provoked or influenced them. We then talk about these things at a time and place of their choosing, with as many of the items present as possible. Photographs of all the things selected by each guest can be found at thethingsthatmakeus.com. So I'm currently outside the novelty... Oh my God, sirens. I'm currently outside the Novelty Automation Arcade in central London. This is the magnificent creation of inventor, engineer, maker and cartoonist Tim Hunkin. Tim makes these extraordinary contraptions that are just delightful and I'm about to... Yeah, there he is. I'm peering through the window and he's crouched down in front of one of his machines performing a little bit of maintenance, spanner in hand. His drive and enthusiasm to discover and celebrate how things work has clearly influenced him throughout his career, as it can be seen in everything, from the encyclopedic cartoon strip he drew for the Observer newspaper to his influential TV series called The Secret Life of the Home, in which he deconstructed ordinary household objects. They're great. I really recommend you check them out on YouTube and also browse Tim's website in order to get a feel for his unique work. But for now, have a listen to him talking about the things that have made him as I... Uh, Go inside. Oh, I don't think he heard me. I'll try on the window. Hi, Tim. No. <laughs> well, I have my office is stuffed full of things, so uh, in a way it should have been difficult, but I I don't know. No, I thought it'd been a couple of minutes actually. I just thought they're nice things and yeah, they mean something to me. Do you at home sort of have an area where if you, you know, come home clutching something that somehow interests you, you'd put it or uh, no, it's more that my office is a sort of museum really of things that uh, I've come across in interesting ways. Everything in the office has a story, but there's a lot of it. So what's the first thing you're going to share? The first today? object is uh, this pocket watch. This was my, uh, when my aunt died, we went around to her house and uh, her, some of her family were quite wealthy. And this, uh, this pocket watch was made about 1800, was passed down to her. I thought it was the most exquisite thing and nobody else in the family seemed to want it. It didn't work. And I was got it home and I, um, opened it up, found it was quite difficult how to work, you know, there's a glass outer case, and then, it's a while since I've taken it, opened it, and then there's another case, and then the mechanism, uh, you press, whoops, we've got to press the right thing here, I think it's that one, the mechanism swings out like that. And when I first opened it out, I thought a little worm had got in there, there was this <laughs> funny little worm inside. and. Then, I, what I really couldn't believe, I, I looked at it more closely and I realised it was an absolutely microscopic bicycle chain. No. And, uh, where is it? Yeah, it's well, I can a, sort of see. Yes, that's yes, it, that's like it. A tiny yeah. cable, little, that's what it looked like. links. Yeah, the links are less than a millimetre apart. I mean, it's absolutely tiny. And I just thought this was the most extraordinary thing I'd ever seen. And. I, I was longing to take it to bits, you know, but scared because I thought it was worth a lot of money. But I'd done a talk for the British Horological Society a, f a few years before, so I wrote to them and asked 
if anybody would be prepared to tutor me, you know, to take it to bits. And I got a lot of sniffy replies, obviously, saying not a suitable project for a beginner and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> but um, Ian Coote, great man, rashly took me on and uh, I had a fantastic time with him showing me how what to do. I got into trouble because you, you have to use these very, very sharp tweezers. They're not like your ordinary bathroom tweezers. They cost 30 quid each. They're made of the most exotic Swiss steel. They're so sharp, they can pick up really, really tiny things, but they also scratch everything, you know. So yeah. I scratched it quite a bit, so it's not worth quite as much as it was. But we did get it going. And uh, I now know what makes it tick. Does it still work to this day? Oh, yes, it does. It doesn't yeah, work for a full day. Um, we think that the balance spring uh, at some point had broken and they shortened it so it, that's why it won't last for a day it doesn't keep terribly good time either uh, it was made in Switzerland about 1800 and at the time Switzerland was the place where they made cheap watches you know the posh watches came from England and this is where cheap watches came from from Switzerland you know I got quite a long way through taking it to bits and putting it back together when it struck me that all these little fiddly bits they were all made by hand there were no machine tools or yeah. anything then and you know just the sort of workmanship it just completely extraordinary and the tools to make tools to then make this again yes. they all sort of yeah, make yeah. their own drill bits don't they well, yes yes and well and, and they're, they're just little flat bits i mean I've, i was using some of ian's flat bits and they just don't look as if they should work you know and when you change scale everything works differently so you see the the main case isn't held on with nuts and bolts these are little pins that go through with tiny holes and then you you tap these these little taper pins in through the holes and that's what holds it all together it's extraordinary i don't know i just love it <laughs> beautiful engineered object and the outside you've got is that enamel or sort of pearl yeah little um, bits of... yeah the, the, it's um i think it was probably a religious scene ian told me actually the watch is probably not that valuable and actually the keys are worth more than the watch <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a powerful thing isn't it taking something apart to see how it works like yes. you can literally open that up and have a look at it and yeah. figure out what's well, going on and get it and getting it to tick you know yeah and so rather than just being a watch it was my watch then you know and it was sort of uh it is very satisfying understanding how it ticks so yeah so object number two object number two um okay so we'll go from something uh historical and exquisite to a tool i use every day how about that um so this is my mole grips. Um, this is made by a French company called Vicom. And the point about these are that you can adjust them single-handed. So you can get them to clamp around absolutely anything uh, just by... Um, now that's too loose. So if I just... Uh, maybe maybe one more. Still, oh, I see. This, well, that's a bit too... Let me go. Oh, needs to be a bit, a bit wider. You do that with the knurled thing there, and that should probably, that's still a bit tight. I think I'd uh, permanently dent the mahogany if I did that. <laughs> so, but now, then they'll, they'll cling on. You can make them grip as tightly as you want. So I use these as a spanner. You can hold a nut, and, and also you can get it around the head of a screw. It won't come out, and so for awkward screws, I use it. You can see it's all really battered and weld spattered. I use it as a welding clamp all the time. It's, it's kind of, if I got to go in Lon to London and um, mend something and I don't know what's wrong, I've got a leather man, but this is the one tool I would take in addition to the leather man. And it's sort of just well thought out and yeah. And I've got lots of them because I, when I'm clamping up something to weld, I use a lot of them. I've given them to a lot of my friends and uh, they all have them in pride of place in their toolboxes, so. 
tools are, you'd say, part of our humanity. I mean, these define us, don't they? Yeah, well, they, and they extend what we can do. They're, they're wonderful. And uh, I suppose also, I just like objects that I use every day. You know, so, so it's, a, it's a mixture of things. There's nothing more satisfying than buying a nice tool. <laughs> I've got a nice pair of electrical snips I was using just before I came. So you make things pretty much every day, I'd imagine. Mm. You're engaging with the world physically, yes. using tools every day. Yes. Can you remember the first moment you made something and felt sort of empowered to be like, yes, that's a thing and I've done it? Oh, first thing I made. Um, I suppose, yeah, well, I made things out of cardboard and sellotape when I was a kid and sort of only gradually moved on to more substantial things. And there was, I made this burglar catching machine. It was really starting to make things that made people laugh. That was really what got me going. And I thought that, that was satisfying, get that reaction. And uh, so nothing's changed, really. <laughs> so that was a burglar catcher, didn't you? I made a burglar catching machine and I also made a foot tickling machine. And they both, you know, this is you know, when I was seven or nine or something, and uh, yeah, so, you know, that sort of thing. So I've made silly objects. I've, I've, I've had a long time making silly objects, yeah. What age was it that you thought, well, the path that might allow that to become something I do as a job, um, I might do engineering? Like, when was that point? Well, no, that didn't really seem related, actually. Mm. It was just, I was at school and not that engaged with school, but one of the things I did quite like was uh, maths. And at the time, A-level maths was applied maths, not the sort of maths they teach now. So it was like, how much does a bridge bend and how far does the bullet go and all that sort of thing. And differentials and calculus, all that sort of thing. I like that. So, and partly because the homework was very quick, much quicker than writing essays. You know, it was always a time and motion study, really, in how to avoid doing any work. But, so I drifted into engineering because of that. Only much later made the connection <laughs> to the silly things that I made at home. And in some ways, there's still um, the actual stuff I learned at Cambridge. It wasn't very useful for making, say, arcade machines I make now, but some of the earlier stuff I did at school, just O-level, uh, GCSE, physics, and that sort of thing, is more relevant in some ways than the advanced stuff. <laughs> Object number three. Object number three. Um, okay, so we'll have a complete change again. I was trying to pick a variety of stuff. So um, I like optics. It's pretty, you know, lenses and uh, and magical, you know, and doing things with mirrors and all that sort of stuff. And so I, you know, if I see a big lens in an antique shop, I have to buy it. Or that sort of thing. You know, it's just uh, I don't know why, but they're just magic things. And you know, the whole thing of uh, burning a hole in something with the sun and all that stuff. I love it. And I made my own cameras for a while. You know, so I, I got I got obsessed. I did quite a lot with those basic optical equations and stuff. And, and so it made me appreciative of all sorts of optical things and like enjoy taking optical contraptions to bits and. Um, so I was just thinking of some bit of optics. My, my office is full of sort of things that glitter and cast rainbows and all that sort of thing. So I was thinking of just something I could bring along. So I decided to bring a pentaprism because like, the thing about this prism is if you look at it, it'll always be looking at you. Ooh. Oh, but that's I, quite disconcerting. But if I look at it, it's always looking at me. And if so if you looked at it from one end... Well, if I come round here... I can see my face. Oh, in I it. see what you but mean. You, yeah. You so you. not if we put us either side of it. If if we look in. No, you'll you'll still see just you, and I'll still see just me, and you just see ref the odd reflections that way. 
And, and somehow the crosshairs are always in the middle of your eyeball, you know, it's as if it's about to get you. So it was called a pentaprism? Yeah, and it's used, it's used, they're used by surveyors. You know when you see them with a theodolite or a laser level, uh, the man at the other end with the stick on the top of his stick is usually one of these, because that bounces the light back into the theodolite. As you said, the cross is always directly, I guess, what would be your dominant eye. If I close one eye and open the other, the cross yeah, flicks. It moves, that's it right. flicks. Yeah. And I'm upside down as well. Yes. So, but it's not, you know, it's not that particular object. It's representative of mm. a class of uh, just uh, things that glitter and <laughs> glittery stuff. <laughs> yeah. So you left Cambridge. Did you feel at that point, I'm an engineer, I will now go off and do engineering? It, it's funny, I was thinking recently, the only thing I knew is I didn't want to work in an office. And, uh, and I sort of realised that wasn't very compatible with being an engineer. <laughs> Because I'd always sort of done sort of money-making schemes in the holidays, and so I just decided it was a different time. There wasn't so much pressure to get a job, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll just mess about and on my own devices for a bit. And I actually got a job in a model maker's, uh, industrial model-making company, and they cut me down to size because I wasn't very good at making things, you know. <laughs> they made me sweep the floor and all sorts of things. It was good for me. I learned a lot from them. Eventually I got the job at The Observer doing the cartoon strip because they happened to see some of the cartoons I'd done for a student newspaper and were looking for a cartoon strip for the back of their colour supplement and said, oh well we'll try reprinting these and see how they go and they liked them so uh, I stayed there for 14 years <laughs> and slowly got make better at making things when I wasn't drawing the cartoons. So, yeah. Do you think that drawing helps you make? Um, it does now, it does processes. now, but I think when people start off, they should spend less time drawing and more time fiddling with things and fiddle, you know, trying to glue things together and cut things out and working directly with materials. Drawing is really only helpful if you have the experience to sort of feed into what will work and what doesn't work. And schools just do it because it's convenient, because the kids can sit at a desk rather than having scary tools. And <laughs> you mentioned there's not, there wasn't so much of the pressure of having to get a job, mm. and you know, implying that actually now that is something that young people face is that pressure to make a living or sustain mm. themselves in a world where that might be harder. So yeah, it's difficult for for kids and. I'm sure if I left college now, I'd have more, feel more pressured. Yeah, I don't know that I would be so relaxed about it. Though one of the things about going to Cambridge is that, uh, not everybody, but I came out of it, this enormous sense of privilege, thinking the world is a small place and of course I can do whatever I like. <laughs> I enjoyed my time at Cambridge. <laughs> and I felt, I felt a bit guilty about it ever since, really. That sort of, you realise just what uh, that sort of confidence and advantage it is in life. So. Yeah, I'm pretty disgustingly privileged. Next object. Next object. Uh, okay, this is part of the inside of the first generation of iPods. I brought this because, well, I'll show you it first. Why not do that? Oh, so it's a sort of tile, metal tile. Oh, I think it's this way up. Sort of five centimetres by four centimetres. Yeah, sort of thing. I might turn on the lights actually. Uh, yeah. They're just behind you, that switch behind you there. Can you, will you reach? Yeah, just because just you'll be able to see it a bit better. And inside, Ooh. it's the, it's a, this is a hard disc player, but the disc is only about 25mm in diameter. It's the smallest hard disc player. So, a bit like my great aunt's watch, it's a, it's a jewel. 
the reason I brought this is because I, I think I've been very lucky to live through the transition from analog to digital. And uh, it's a class of object in my office is interesting things from the transition from one to the other. So there's been a long history of people wanting things to be solid state and digital before it was actually quite possible to do it. So by the time they reached uh, the second generation of iPods, it was solid state memory. Uh, but this was what they had to do. And think of the cost of making something. A spinning internal Yes, yeah, so that would be going, your, I mean, yeah. what a tiny motor to make that, because it's only uh, three mil, most three mil, two and a half mil thick, I think, this whole uh, hard disk player. And then that that's the sort of electromagnet that swings the arm in and out. And that's, you know, think of the accuracy that's got to work on that tiny scale. Um, and be able to do that whilst bouncing about something yes, running or something. Yes, running, yeah. exactly. Yes, the whole thing. Is, it's an extraordinary feat. But I do love these transition things. So some of the early computer, handheld computer games where they couldn't actually make everything solid state, so the little motors and <laughs> things inside. I've got quite a few of those. There's some early things from washing machines when they weren't solid state. And they actually have this roll of film with different symbols on moved around by a motor and, you know, Lovely. bonkers stuff. And, and also, because I feel I'm very lucky to have my foot in both camps, that these, these machines, they're mainly old-fashioned electrical electromechanical, uh, just with a sprinkling of digital intelligence added on top. Um, and it, it's very rich territory. People, the world has marched on so fast that people now tend to make things that are complicated in software with relatively simple interfaces. And to step back uh, to this halfway house of uh, the best of electromechanical combined with things is such extraordinarily unexplored territory that uh, I feel like a kid in a playground, really. <laughs> so, you I mean, you opened up the pocket watch to reveal the extraordinary workings. You open up the hard disk drive of the iPod to reveal similarly extraordinary workings. But do you feel you could fix that? No, I couldn't fix no. that. No, that's the difference. <laughs> I wouldn't go anywhere near that. And your last object? My last object isn't here because it's too big. Um, it's the Tamar Bridge, uh, Brunel's Tamar Bridge in, uh, between... Devon and Cornwall. I've got friends in Cornwall, so I go on the train quite a lot. And the main line still goes over Brunel's Bridge and it slows down to 14 miles an hour as the maximum speed. It's an incredibly dramatic position, high up over this steep valley. I always hang out the window and look at all the fittings and you know all the original stuff and I can never understand why nobody else in the train, <laughs> or everybody in the train, I feel, should be hanging out the window. Uh, on the two towers at the end, it says that in cast iron letters, high up, very large letters, it says Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Then when you've, you've finally gone over at such slow speed, the, the track turns very sharply, so then you get this magnificent view of the whole bridge. I don't know, it's a, that to me, it's the sort of romance of, of the sort of Britain as the workshop of the world, as the confidence in British engineering and, uh, or the, of the Victorians had in science and technology and such bravura. Technologically it's not a very important bridge because uh, Stevenson made uh, box girder bridges. It's, it looks extraordinary, I should have said that, yes, because it's this cast iron tube, small sections riveted together in a sort of arch uh, between the two pillars on either side of the gorge. And from this arch the hangers go down to support the, uh, the track. 
But is it? There's something of the confidence and the bravado of the age. It's it, a statement. Uh, yes, but it, it, exactly. But it also it has this effect on me. I I've always you know if you hear people being moved when they look at sculptures and stuff and. Sculpture has never done it for me, but uh, or paintings. But going over that bridge, I feel moved, and and I, I I I don't know. There's something intensely romantic to me about it. Yeah, that's why it's number five on my list. Do you feel, as someone who sort of ploughed their own furrow, an ambition? I mean, you've made things at a certain scale, human scale, but at the same time, you've decided, right, here's a pier. I'm going to populate it. Here's a vision of a thing I want to do. You know, that again, that takes a confidence and a bravado. Or do you not feel that? You just well, it doesn't start like that, because it just starts, oh, um, can I have a little bit of space on your pier, you know, and one thing leads to another. Opening this place in London is about as brave as, <laughs> as I've been, really. So tell us a little bit where we're stood. OK, so here we are in my arcade in central London called Novelty Automation. Uh, it's closed today, which is why it's quiet, and uh, the machines are switched off. So there are about 20 machines in here, which you buy tokens at the counter here, and then you use the tokens to play the machines. We've been open for about 15 months. But it's essentially the idea of the arcade machine taken laterally on steroids or <laughs> given a, a twist. And as, as a, what clearly comes through is that a sense of humour. Well, yes, yeah, they're to entertain people. They're not for gambling, obviously. And uh, one of the excitements about opening here is London has a rich history of popular entertainment and of satire as well and I sort of want to be part of it yeah you know <laughs> well, I had an extraordinary experience when I came here at one time um I arrived to a, it was empty but the person doling mm. out the tokens was in a slight state of shock and they're like you've You've, you've just missed Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they had to then regale us of how Someone oh, came yes. in and said, do oh, they right, have yeah, the space yeah, themselves? Yeah. And, yeah. That, that was weird, yes. Well, that's only half the weirdness. The new machine there, it's a lead, because um, it's a Beverly Hills mansion, and inside the different windows are different stars, including Angelina Jolie and one. And what happens is when you get close, the drone, you're flying close, the view on your camera s switches from the live view of the drone to um, pre-recorded animation. And I'd just done the animation four days before of Angelina Jolie in her closet, at first trying on frocks and then going to the other side of her closet and trying on orphans to match her frock. And four days later, she, she turns up here. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not one to super superstitious, so I don't believe in weird coincidences, but that was quite weird. But I think it's a testament to that it is on the map of things to do in London, it really is. Well, it's I hope it is, yes. We're, we're very dependent on time out, who are kind to us and list us. Uh, so, fingers crossed, though. Visitor numbers have increased, so, you know, it's expensive to run, so it's just all oh, makes me a little bit jittery. <laughs> but that's part of the fun, you know, if, it was, if I was confident about it, it wouldn't be exciting, so you can't have one without the other, really, risk. The main reason I'd run out of space on the pier, but I wanted to carry on making arcade machines. I didn't want to retire. So, so does the concept of retirement sit in your mind as something you're interested in or is never going to be for you? No. Or it's not appropriate to no, I don't your know way that, of being? I think arty people don't particularly retire anyway, but uh, no, I certainly have no intention of uh, stopping. You know, I'm very bad at going away on holiday because, you know, I haven't got a workshop. <laughs> So, uh, no, it, uh, I'll probably work more slowly, but 
I don't know. You know. Sometimes having a bit more patience is useful too, so it's not all bad. I'm working on this machine called the housing ladder at the moment, where you're trying to buy a house before you die. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's basically it's sort of like you're underground. And uh, so it's sort of just rubble and, and then with a gold a house which is all covered in gold leaf at the top which is all lit you know so sort of this un unattainable <laughs> riches at the top and you've got a little man who's climbing a ladder you're climbing a big ladder outside it's like an exercise machine step exercise machine little characters going up and uh, every time you do a step on the big ladder the little character goes up climbs another step on his little ladder but there are these baddies who pop out the investor and the developer and the second homeowner and the, you know <laughs> and it, so it's like grandmother's footsteps if one of those pops out and you do another step then you go down rather than up and you're age, you're getting older there's a dial with your age so <laughs> does the so. resistance increase as well then as you that's go, a good idea <laughs> or maybe you just go up less I don't know yeah yeah, that would be good if the resistance. Tired just, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you get, is there a moment when you get, oh, relative dies, inheritance deposit yes. increases? <laughs> well, no, no, what you do, you, you, they, they, there's a simple version that you could do that. That's, I hadn't thought of that. No, I was just thinking of different levels of difficulty. So it could be very easy if you have an offshore trust or quite easy with the bank of mummy and daddy. None yeah. of the above. <laughs> Very hard. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. That is a good one. Yeah, a little knob of resistance knob on the treadmill or something. Yeah, but uh, I think getting, yeah, making you, but you could easily make it go up a bit less far as you got near the top as you're getting older. Yeah, that would be just reducing the speed of the motor or the time that it runs for. So, yeah. Tim, thank you so much for sharing your objects with us. Really, really interesting. listening to the things that make us to see pictures of the things selected by the guest in this and all episodes please visit thethingsthatmakeus.com you can get in touch with the show via twitter at things make us and if you like what you hear please subscribe so not to miss the next installment